If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's kind of in the second half of the Bible. It's a book called Romans. We call it a book. It's a book within the book, if the Bible is the book. And it is actually, if this isn't confusing enough, a letter. And it was a letter to a church based in Rome many years ago, about 2,000 years ago. And it was written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by God. And it was written at a time where the church was full of people of different faith backgrounds, believe it or not. They weren't just like Christians as what you think of. There was a strong, strong Jewish heritage. And there was this confusion, and the Apostle Paul was addressing it with some very deep theology and very deep truth uh, about what it really meant to come before God. Who could do it? Was it a Gentile? Was it a, a, a Jew by birth? Uh, what did God want? How could, we, how could we really have a relationship with God? All this very deep stuff. And we're picking it up today in chapter 5, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover 30 verses in the Bible, which is hard to do in 25, 30 minutes. So that's one minute a verse. Uh, but here's the deal. Sometimes we can get bogged down in the really deep stuff and miss the big picture. Not only that, but we tend to focus on, on the good stuff rather than the bad stuff. And, and sometimes we think the bad stuff there uh, is, is really bad, so we avoid it. I don't know about you, but I have a dog, and Patch is the Wonder Dog. I, I've shared this with you many times. Patch is the Wonder Dog is this amazing dog. She's dumber than a box of rocks at some times. But other times, like when we go into the truck and, and we're on the road and we're headed out, she's bouncing all over the, the truck about to cause a wreck. She's got her paws on the dash. She's happy as a clam. But the moment we pull into Mark's office, the vet's office, she recognizes the building. I don't know how she does this. She did not have classes on what a vet's office looks like. She, she basically, I didn't think she could tell the difference between a bone and a ball or, or anything else, but she recognizes Mark's office and she starts shaking a different kind of shaking than she was. She freaks out all the time into the office and then as soon as we're done in the vet's office, all of a sudden she's this happy dog licking all the, the vet text. She's ready to go. Incredibly bright. But she's not really interested in dealing with what she thinks is going to be bad. And this morning's sermon is incredibly controversial. I'll tell you that. Because number one, the title of this morning's message isn't really a title that I made up. My preaching pastor would have fired me or given me an F in preaching class had I had done this in, in preaching class. Because this isn't the kind of title that you really want to put on a sermon. Is your body an instrument of righteousness? Because you can talk about like bodies like on the football field, but in church with ladies present, you don't want to talk about bodies. You don't want to start questioning their bodies and what kind of instrument they're like. Really, I was going to go to the gym. I've been, I've been trying to cut out sweets. Don't talk about people's bodies. We want to talk about church, music, preaching, whatever. But when you show up to church in the morning, you don't want anyone getting that personal, right? Not only that, but this passage that we're about to cover, 30 verses, 29 times, 29 times in those 30 verses, the Apostle Paul mentions sin, transgression, or something similar. 29 times in 30 verses, the Apostle Paul talks about sin. There are some churches, mega churches, with tens of thousands of people that literally will not talk about sin on a Sunday morning. This sermon, this section of the Bible would be banned because sin isn't popular. 
when you when you get to church kind of like patches arrives at, at the vet's office they know what's up right and if you come to church and you think they're going to talk about sin you don't show up so the theory goes but here's the incredible thing if you actually read the bible and what is important to god and and how we're to live life sin is critically important not to beat us over the head but to tell us how we overcome it and what God's desire is. So we're going to begin talking about deep theology, but I want to let you know that it gets to application. And the application hopefully will change your life. Not only change your life, but change your approach to what you even think Christianity is all about in church and why you're here this morning and what's really important how to live. So let's begin beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5. Seems like an odd place to begin. We didn't actually intend to start here. We couldn't finish up last week, but it's actually, it all flows, so it works together. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For while we were still weak, and this is very important because this begins a theme that continues through the next 30 verses, our bodies while we're away from God, while we do not have a relationship with God, we struggle. We struggle and we battle against the things of this world, the, the desires of our flesh, uh, the desires of our eyes. There's this constant battle, and without Christ, we will fail. There is no hope. And so Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a right, uh, righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now there's a whole sermon in that one passage of scripture, but know this. If you, if you don't know about Jesus today and you have no idea what I'm talking about, there is a concept that you have to clean yourself up to come to church and you have to get right before you can kind of talk to God and he'll hear your prayers. That's not it at all. That's not biblical. The biblical approach is this. God sees you where you're at. And if you don't have a relationship with him, there's nothing that you can do to get right with God. You can't clean yourself up enough. But the good news is this. God loves you just like you are. He doesn't want you to remain like that, so much so that he sent his own son to pay the price for your sins where you're at right now. So he is the one that cleans you up. You don't clean you up. It's after you come into a relationship with God, he wipes these sins away. Then he desires, and that's what this morning's passage is talking about, that we begin to address that sin and we begin to live for God and not the sin that we were used to living for. But starting out, Come as you are. Do not believe that somehow you can work your way into God's grace. That's not grace. That's works. So he says, just at the right time, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, and this is the first of 29 times he begins to talk about sin, Christ died for us, you and me. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Again, not your works, not my works, not just trying to balance the, the pros and the con or the good and the bad at, at the end of your days, some, you know, the kind of the whole scales deal that some people think about. No, we are justified by the blood of Christ. Much more shall we be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. A lot of people, again, have a misunderstanding of what eternity is like, what, what like good and bad justice is ultimately like. They think that sometimes that they're living for kind of the best they can live, and any sort of bad things they've done, someday they're going to have to maybe face like Satan, or you know they're going to have to deal with darkness or something like that. No, we are actually saved by God from God. You see, God is perfectly holy and good. At the same time, he is perfectly just. So God's holiness and his wrath are equal. He is a God of love, but he is a God of justice as well. And believe it or not, when we are saved, we are actually saved from the very wrath and judgment of God on sin. It's an interesting concept. A lot of people don't understand that because we have quit talking really about the God of wrath. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And he says this, his judgment, and notice this strong language here, is wrath. And he continues forward and he says this in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, this is war language, wrath, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago, that was no small thing. Death is serious, and if you've ever faced life and death, you know that it is. So when we talk about maybe other ways to God other than Jesus, or maybe all people can go to heaven, no, you're diminishing and you, you, we misunderstand the seriousness of the situation. God is in control and he's provided one way. And it's so serious that it required the blood, the death of his only son that we might be saved. You reject that. Can you imagine you offering your child as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of someone? What would you think if someone rejected that? Would you be a little upset? Well, guess what? God's wrath remains on you if you reject Jesus. You accept him, though. All of a sudden, you, the door opens to this incredible relationship. Can you imagine the kind of love that it takes to offer that sacrifice? Well, the Apostle Paul here says, so much more shall we be saved by his life. So what was Jesus' life? What was he saving us to? What kind of life ought we to live? And he continues in verse 7. He says, there's more than that. We're not just saved from, from uh, God's wrath and, and life may be eternal. Verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the war is over. You're no longer enemies. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you are now reconciled. Jesus is actually playing on this in his teaching. For instance, in talking simply about money, for instance, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Throughout his entire teaching, Jesus is incredibly divisive. There is no gray area with Jesus. You either follow me or you follow the world. I'm either Lord or not. There's no playing around with Jesus. 
It is all by grace through faith. But make no mistake, it is all or nothing. And that can be challenging. So how do we deal with sin in our life after we, we, we come to this understanding of grace and salvation? Well, he continues on, and he talks about what this is like. He says this in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, this one man he'll get to here in a minute, this is Adam. So this death came into the world as a judgment on Adam's original sin. And based upon that, we all experience death. We are, we are experiencing at some point in this life, unless Jesus returns, the consequence of Adam's sin. And in his nature, we sin as well. We are born with a sin nature. And he says, so death spread to all men because of this one sin. For verse 13, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Remember I, at the beginning, I mentioned there was this Jewish audience and they thought they were so consumed with the sin that the law was talking about that they sometimes forgot that there was a time before the law. And he brings up this rhetorical comment and he says in the second half of verse 13, but sin is not counted where there is no law. He's, he's, that's what some are saying. But verse 14 is his answer. He says this, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So in other words, you can make any argument you want from the law about, well, there really was no sin before the law because the law, uh, the law codified sin. Well, he doesn't play those games. He just simply says, really? You want to say that? Well, how about this? Everyone died before the law. So there was something going on, in other words. He is raising an objection that some were uh, trying to kind of argue, and he just simply dismisses it with the reality of life. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now let's pause here. Some people have actually used this idea of Adam being a type to dismiss his physical reality that he really existed, that he was really the first man. They're just saying, well, Adam was this type. Well, if you do that, you have to do the same thing with who he compares him to, and that's Jesus Christ. And you cannot dismiss Jesus Christ. Even unbelievers, atheists, acknowledge Jesus lived in time. He was a real person, real place. It is one of the most substantiated historical facts there is in existence. Jesus was real. So yes, Adam was a type, but he was real as well. And we covered this at great length when we went through the creation, uh, the first seven days of creation. So we won't go any further, but notice Adam was a type. So he's describing Adam sinned one time. I don't know about you, but hey, I've sinned. I probably sinned this morning, but I definitely sinned yesterday. I was preparing my house to paint. Anyone enjoy painting? Yes, you're over my house this week. All right. So painting can cause me to sin by just even thinking about painting the outside of my house, right? There's all sorts of sins there. Can you imagine the moment you sin, like God going, boom, you're done. I'm killing you. You're dead. And not only you're dead, but I'm going to curse you, the ground, your job, your, your wife, everyone. <laughs> that's, that's pretty severe, right? It, but that's what happened to Adam. He was like living this perfect life. He sins one time. He tries to blame it on his wife. His wife points it back to him. And God says, I'm having none of it. You're both dead. 
done. God's justice. He's perfectly holy. Sin one time, you're dead. So that's the situation that the world was in. Death enters into the world. But he's going to compare it to what Jesus did. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For those of you who don't have a background in, in, in the Bible, trespass basically means the same thing as sin. It is a breaking of a covenant or a breaking of a law or basically doing wrong. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God in the free gift. Notice this free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So one sin, death, and notice this, all the sins of the entire world, one sacrifice. Not only one sacrifice, but grace for all the sins. If you think about it, God's justice and wrath is deserving for one sin, and the trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of all the sins put together, God's grace. And it abounds more and more and more and more. That is God. That is the God of the Bible. That's why sin, this topic, is so important. Because of its consequences and because of God's grace and his solution to it. The prescription is simply this. You had life, sin, death. Post salvation post-resurrection of the cross you have sin death but then you have life anew in christ and then notice this this is where it gets real after this salvation and you have you're saved you have eternal life you get sin again but notice what he just said grace abounded more when you have sin after you have jesus in your life Grace covers it. You have this reconciliation and you can go to the Father and there's no judgment. There is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is tenderness. There's love. There's comfort. I don't know about you, but I'm married. Most of you have either been married or want to be married. Can you imagine a marriage where there's no forgiveness? No grace? How long would that last? You would, well, first of all, you would never actually make it to the marriage ceremony because if you've been involved in wedding planning, you know that's like one of the stressful, that, that's like, here, let's test you. See how much sin we can throw on you before you actually get married. Let's see if we can cause a divorce before you're married. That's our deal. No, marriage is all about sin, right? But you have to learn to be forgiving and merciful and gracious and loving. This is a picture of, that's in the scripture about God's relationship with us. Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. And we have this, this heavenly father who loves us and just pours out his love and mercy on us continually, even after we're married, right? Married doesn't, getting married isn't a point in time. It is a relationship. Well, he continues and he, and he begins to explain this. In verse 18, he says, Therefore, one, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. Most people understand that if you've been to church. Verse 19, though, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many 
will be made righteous. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Mosaic law outlined a bunch more stuff that was technically sinful. So it increases it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this is important because I I continued into verse 1 of the next chapter because this is how Paul continues his argument. If you don't understand this, you just deal with chapter 5 and it's like all this deep theology about sin and grace and you're like, good, I understand that. I passed that that class in Sunday school when I was 8. I'm moving on. No, here's what all that deep theology meant. This all, all this talk about Adam and Jesus and sin and, and grace abounding even more. This is where life meets the Bible. He asked this very simple question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Once we know Jesus, should we just live life like we always have been? And here is where it gets crazy. Once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What do we do as a church? We grab someone and we take them to church, right? We stick them in here and we do our absolute best to make this time on a Sunday morning perfect. The guys up here spend hours practicing their guitars. I spend a great deal of time studying so I can deliver this message. The guys in back videoing for, for Facebook and that sort of stuff, they spend a lot of time Uh, we just make Christianity all about new believers and taking them and plopping them here for like an hour out of the week. And this is the highlight of Christianity. And if that is the case, you would expect the Apostle Paul, after explaining what all sin, death, and wrath, and all this stuff is, and God's grace, you would think, here's the ticket to not letting sin abound in your life. Here's the five steps to creating the perfect worship service. That's what you would expect to read, right? And then here's the 10 things that you do as a pastor to create the perfect sermon. And here's the, the church and the atmosphere and the logo and, and the mission and, and all the setting that you have to do to create an event on Sunday morning. That would be the solution that you would expect to find in the Bible if you were really thinking about what we do as a Christian church today. Yet he mentions none of that. Not one, not a bit. What you're about to read was critical for the Apostle Paul, was inspired by God. He says, you want to know how to live life in Jesus? Here's how. He says this, by no means, verse 2, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we were united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, you can misunderstand this if you don't have a biblical understanding of all the teaching on baptism, Hold your place in your Bible. Turn to Colossians. It's a small book to the right. Uh, It is another letter written by the Apostle Paul. This will help you understand what Paul is doing here 
with this picture of baptism. Baptism doesn't save. The Apostle Paul didn't have a brain cramp and say, all right, we're saved by faith, and now all of a sudden you have to have baptism on top of it. No, that's not the way it works. He's using baptism as an illustration of our faith. And in Colossians, he's very clear on this. So we need to take a, a moment to take a look at this so I don't lose you. Baptism is a picture, and we've had, this is the first Sunday in like five or six weeks, we haven't had a baptism, but it is a picture of what someone else has done earlier in their life. They've made a decision in their heart by faith to trust in God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, just a couple quick verses here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. So you know right off the bat that Paul is using this as an illustration because he's using circumcision. And as nice as circumcision, I'm sure is, uh, it doesn't really work with getting rid of sin. That's not how it works. Verse 11, he says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's using a physical illustration from the Old Testament to describe a spiritual reality. And he says, "You you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he moves on to a second illustration, baptism here, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him, notice this, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, So he's bringing it back to the earlier illustration. God made alive with him. Notice it's God's activity, not ours. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. So we have this clear illustration of both circumcision and baptism. That this salvation is a work of faith of God, not our own. So Paul, bringing it back to Romans, uses this illustration of baptism. He says, Don't you remember? You were baptized, and baptism is important. It's one of the primary commands in Scripture. When you get saved, be baptized, because it is this public testimony to everybody of what you did. Otherwise, they don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what sort of decision you made. People can pretend, right? I don't know about you, but I can be fake sometimes. I'll admit that. Can you be fake? Yeah. Well, no, I'm not going to ask you to admit that. That's like asking you about your body on a Sunday morning. So, Here's the deal. He uses this picture. He says, Christ died, and he died, and he's li- he was resurrected, and he's living for God. That's our attitude. That was the commitment. That was the public testimony we made when we trusted in Jesus. So to live in sins is ridiculous. That's where life is just nonsense. You can't, you can't get away with that. Verse 6 of chapter 6, Romans He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So in a supernatural, spiritual way, when Christ died, he died for our sins. And when we trust in him, we die to our sins. We crucify the old self. Uh, Paul, again, uses this in Colossians and in, in other books about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, dying to your old nature, living for Christ now. He says, it was brought to nothing, second half of verse six, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Now we're getting somewhere. Before Jesus, we are enslaved to sin. That's our nature. We can't help it, but we are judged for it. After Jesus, we still have a sin nature, but we are also born again. We are new creation in Christ. We now have a choice. But it is a choice. You either can follow God or you can follow the old sin nature. But know this for sure. You are not enslaved. You are not enslaved. You can say, well, that's just how I'm wired. I'm just a pessimistic person. I'm just kind of negative. Uh, I'm just sad all the time or I'm just, I got a short temper. Yeah, I'll agree with all that. You, You are hardwired with a sin nature, but you are a new creation in Christ if you trust in Jesus and you can no longer use that as an excuse. I do it. People do it all the time. Well, I'm a guy and guys just do this or, or whatever the case may be. We do it every day naturally. But the, the scripture says we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. When, when you trusted in Christ, you were set free. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Not only did he die to pay for your sins, he died to sin. Notice this about life and how this applies to you. He died to sin once for all. He died for your sin, but he also died to your sin. Or the idea is this, you no longer are enslaved by sin, but notice this, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourselves. So this is you and God. Can you imagine this? Imagine this conversation. You're getting home and and you're talking with your spouse and you're going, you know what? We've been going to Blue Mountain Baptist Church for a long time and we just don't have that many friends there. They're, They're really not that friendly. The worship, eh, it's pretty good, but they don't sing songs that I like. And the pastor, he's the worst. His messages are boring. Uh, and quite frankly, we've been going there a long time, and he hasn't helped me with my issues of self-control or greed at all. That, you know what? If they would sing better songs, I'd be less greedy. If, they would, if that preacher would preach better, I honestly, I would be a much more loving person. I really would. We need to find a better church. Can you imagine? That's just ridiculous. But that's how we kind of evaluate churches, right? But we evaluate churches on the show and how we're entertained or or what we think. But the primary concern of God inspiring Paul here isn't any of that. He's saying this is between you and God. And the choice is this. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. The preacher can't help with that. The, the comfy chairs of the pews don't help with that. Uh, how cool of a church we are, it, it doesn't help with that at all. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, but notice this, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's where it gets really weird. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members 
And this is the weird part. Members is actually referring to parts of your body. It's referring to arms, mouth, mind, heart, your stomach, your lips, your speech. It's, and, and quite frankly, if you wanted a weird sermon title, I wasn't quite brave enough to do that. I was going to say, is your, or are your members an instrument of righteousness? You would have walked in here and like, what kind of weird church is this? But that's the cool thing. When you get in the Bible, you get weirdness, and, but you get truth. You need to think of yourself, all right, if I want to live for Jesus, how am I going to serve Jesus with my body? How am I going to present my body to Jesus as an instrument of righteousness? All of a sudden, the solution to that is no longer the perfect worship service. It's no longer the perfect preacher, the perfect church. It is now of like, oh, right, the problem isn't them, it's me. And it, and it starts with my attitude and my decision, what I'm going to do. And I have to take a hard look at my speech. I've got to take a hard look at my desires. I've got to take a hard look at the, the food that I eat. I got to take a hard look at all sorts of stuff, how I spend my money. I, I, I got to take a look at myself and acknowledge I'm responsible, me and God. You start doing that, every day you get up and go, Lord, I want every aspect of me to be a servant of your righteousness. I want to serve you. When people see me, see my actions, my words, my heart, my, my finances, my, how I treat my spouse, how I raise my kids, I want you and I want them to see righteousness. And here's the cool part. You do that, it says, but present yourselves to God, second half of verse 13, as those who have been brought from death to life. I got news for you. If you're not doing that right now, if you're just playing church, you feel dead inside. You're just here because you're guilty. You feel guilty and you're trying to do something to absolve that guilt. But truthfully, you're dead and you feel dead. I've been there. There's this dryness. But when you're living for Christ, you're living for that decision that you made, all of a sudden you do feel full of life, full of the Holy Spirit. And your members of God, he says in verse 13, to God as instruments for righteousness. And then finally, this beautiful promise in verse 14. For sin will no, will have no dominion, or, or some verses, or some translations say, will no longer have dominion. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's the beautiful life of Jesus. No matter how many times you sin after you trust in Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And the truth is that you were set free and you're still free because God says you're free indeed. No more excuses for living a life that's focused on death and unrighteousness and captured by sin. The solution that flows out of this deep theology of creation and mankind and justification is this reality 
that God loved you where you were. He never stopped loving you now. And he absolutely is not going to let you go. He just wants you to live for him and the choice is yours. You have the power in Christ to live a life of righteousness. How good does that sound? Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you for your mercy and grace in my life, your forgiveness. Uh, Please strengthen those that are here, wherever they're at, whether they're young or old, help them to have new life in you, that they get up fresh every day and think about how to live for you. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.